Praise be to God. As we get to open the word together, hopefully it's not lost on you. It's been said that when you think about God, what comes to mind is the most important thing about you. As we open God's word today, and John 17 is really unlike anything in all of scripture, where typically you hear from a a prophet, a person, or it's telling us to expect Jesus, or it's something about Jesus, or he's talking to people, but here he's talking to God the Father. And we get a glimpse into this triune relationship, where there's one God in three persons, and we see Jesus acknowledge God as Holy Father. Thinking about God's call on my life in, in ministry and in mission and, and what the, the goal is going to be, I, in reading the Holy Spirit, just stopped me like I a, like a hit a brick wall when I read this chapter and simplifying these three keys that you heard in our announcement videos, the mission of Life Community Church is we exist for people to experience a new life in Christ by knowing God, which is eternal life. He lays out John 17. And then he says to sanctify them, to grow them. That's, that's a, in, in our language, it's positionally we're, we're, we're sanctified, we're set apart, and then we continually, progressively grow in that truth. So to know God's eternal life, grow and then go. And we see Jesus play that out in this prayer and pray for the believers then as he's praying for you and me now. It's so important. The thought we think about God, when we think about God, what's that thought that comes to mind? That's the most important thing about you. Some of you might be saying, well, I don't believe in God. I know you're an enemy of God right now. You're against him. You don't know him yet. Hopefully after today you will. Those of us that do know God, we see him as our father because we're his sons. John 1.12 says, we're his sons. To all those who received him, believed in him, and became sons and daughters, we became children of God. So either he's your heavenly father or you're against him. Those are the two ways that we approach God. And here, Jesus is saying, this is amazing. I'm not praying for the entire world. I'm praying for those you've given me. I didn't lose the one except for the son of destruction, but that's what scripture said would happen. Anytime you're like, I don't know what's going on, just read the Bible. And everything that's happening, if you've ever seen a map of the world right now, I was blown away on this app. You could scroll around and see all of Africa is like on fire. All of Northern California is on fire. A couple of our firefighters and my brother-in-law headed up there and Washington got hit with lightning and I was thinking last night when the lightning was going, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, maybe we need to get them back here. Thankfully, I don't think that happened. But there's like, fires, Maui got on fire, the government's not letting any stuff, if you've ever seen people, locals are trying to, with boats and canoes, bring aid, like, that's weird, isn't the government, well, that's kind of the point, but when you go away from God's word, you get into trouble, so we pray, and we're trying to give relief, but you're wondering, what's, Jesus says, man, I pray, they'd be sanctified in truth, we don't need to freak out, and here, we see The most amazing thing in context, this isn't Jesus' morning devotion. This is Jesus' deathbed conversation. This is Jesus on the way to the cross. This is Jesus, if you've ever spent time with people who are dying, they're not long and verbose for words. They're very clear and concise. They know the time is short. 
And every single word carries so much weight. And as we sit in John 17, a couple times throughout the year, we'll come back to this chapter and, and look at what Jesus is praying, who he's praying for, why in simple language, is it no, grow, and go? It's because, like me, we're simple-minded and we forget often. So we need to be reoriented, realigned on the mission essentials. As we see here, Jesus approaches the Father, overhearing this prayer so intimate, and he approaches God so uniquely. In verse 11, he says, Holy Father. I'm sure your grandpa or your parents, they prayed that all the time when they when they prayed, right? No, that's so out of the norm. I, I very rarely, if ever, I can't really recall anyone ever praying, Holy Father, except Jeff, because we've been talking about it. <laughs> At least one person was listening last service. Jesus, when he thinks of his Father, doesn't just say that. He says, Abba, Father, which is like Daddy, Sir. Another way, in very plain language, honoring God as Father, honoring Him. Daddy, I can approach you because we're one, but sir, it's that holy, reverent, set apart, purposeful. And He says, Holy Father, in verse 11. What does that word holy mean? The word holy literally means to be separate, but not what you may think. I know a lot of you are thinking purity and some other ideas, but just hit pause on those for a minute. The basic meaning of the word holy, the Hebrew word meaning Holy in scripture is to be separate, to be separate for something, to be set apart for something. When we talk about the holiness of God, the scripture means he is separate from us. In 1 Samuel 2.2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. Or in Isaiah 40.25, this is maybe the best place God is saying to his people, I am the holy one to whom will you liken me? To whom will you compare me? To see God as holy means that he is utterly exalted, infinitely transcendent, infinitely above us. To see that he's holy is that he is altogether infinitely exalted, transcendent, and far above us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. His timing is not our timing. And, and as much as we push against that, it's helpful that, to see that Jesus is saying your holy Father. Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. As Jesus is fully man and fully God, he's praying to his heavenly Father, showing us this model to depend on. It's interesting. When you read scripture, you'll read most of the New Testament is, is written by a guy named Paul, who was discipled by Jesus for three years. So when Jesus here is modeling praying to the Father, Oftentimes, Paul writes to the churches or people and says, I've been praying for you. I'm often praying for you, consistently, continually making mention of you in my prayers. Where did he get that from? John 17. Jesus is praying for his 12, and he's praying for you and me. That should make you feel pretty special about yourself today. Hopefully, no matter what week you've had, Jesus was praying for you. Even if you don't like Jesus, don't believe in him, he's still praying for you. He said right there, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, I'm not just praying for them, but also for those who will believe in me through your word. 
If you're here because a friend or someone brought you, it's, hey, look at the word. It's not me, it's Jesus. He's the word. Jesus prayed that you'd be here today, hearing this. John Knox, when he was sick, he had his wife read him John 17 over and over as he was dying. And he said it was the anchor to his soul. So if those of you who are suffering may be sick, for those of you who are happy, read John 17 over and over and be reminded this was Jesus' plan. This is his prayer for you, his hope. And he speaks of five things that we're going to go over in the next couple weeks as we look at not just our mission statement, those three things that are come, come out, and there's some overlap here, but he's praying for truth, unity, joy, mission, and holiness. He's praying for truth, unity, that they'd be one as we're one. Truth, that you'd sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. I'm truth. He's on mission, which is just saturated through here, and holiness, that we'd be holy as he's holy. That, that's what God says. He says that you'd be perfect as I'm perfect. And I've had conversations with people. They walk out going, whoa, hold on. I can't be perfect. I can't obey exactly. I'm not that good. Exactly. That's why Jesus prayed, Holy Father. Because Jesus said, why do you call me good teacher? No one is good except God. Jesus was constantly humbling himself, surrendering any kind of idea that would consider him equal to the Father. That's why Paul writes in Philippians, even though he was in the form and likeness of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. That was his mind was such a mind of a servant and a humble, obedient servant, fully devoted to following the plan of salvation so that we would become sons and daughters who are humble servants, fully devoted to following Jesus. So that we would be sons and daughters of a holy father, John 1.12. And the reason why Jesus refers to God this way, because he's modeling for us as sons and daughters of the king how we should respond and pray to a holy father. Isaiah 6 talks about when Isaiah approaches the perfectly transcendent, clean God, he feels unclean. When Job, at the end of the book of Job, approaches the holy, transcendently wise God, he feels like a fool. He's completely undone. As we get to know more about God and his holiness, our unholiness, our 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 foolishness, the, the uncleanness, even the words or the thoughts or the desires. It's like, man, why is my heart drawn to this world when I'm made for something more? I constantly settle for less. You feel crowded. And it's interesting to see just when you believe in Jesus and you start following Jesus, how different your life is from those who reject Jesus and live for the world. And I wasn't that smart, so I was just confused why friends didn't invite me to go hang out with them on the weekends. And then I realized, oh, they don't invite me because they want to go do things that the world wants to do, and they don't want me there because they feel guilty. And it was, it was humbling, but it was also a bummer. I was like, is anyone just going to come read the Bible with me? Just kidding, I didn't do that. I wish I did. I should have more. But there's that thought of like, wait, Jesus said they rejected your word. I gave them your word and they rejected it because they rejected me. And it's like, oh, so in this life, even though we're going to stand for truth, we're going to lose. This world's always been against Jesus. It's always going to be against it. We're not going to win in this life. We actually win by losing. 
We win by dying. We win by serving like Jesus modeled. And so this prayer is so key for us to see the essentials for the mission that he calls us to. And realizing, yeah, you're gonna be around people at work, and when you walk into the break room, they're gonna sprint out of there. When conversations come up and you join the conversation, they know they're gonna watch their language around you because they know what you talk about. In all those ways, we delight in that knowing, oh, there's a little bit of holiness, the holiness of God in you, in his spirit inside of you that's rubbing up against, and they don't yet surrender. So they don't know. Maybe to encourage you, when you think about this, it's not, it's not perfection. It's progress. And we, we're all guilty to some degree of not viewing God as our holy father. Martin Luther, one of the great names that, that started the Reformation, <clears throat> there was a part of it. Other names went before him, but they killed them. And Martin Luther survived to do more debates and and push the Reformation, focusing less on legalism and obeying the rules and laws of the church that were added to Scripture. A guy named Philip that's less known, but was actually more intelligent. Martin Luther wasn't the smartest guy. He was just very articulate, and he ended up living longer than other guys. But Philip was one of the more smarter guys that that was a great theologian and, and thought wonderful things about God and wrote more. And he was constantly prone to anxiety and depression. If you ever look at Spurgeon or any great preacher and follower, it's interesting how even my mentor in college was PhD, pastor, prolific evangelist, and was constantly prone to, to the attacks of the evil one, to the demonic presence of depression and anxiety. And it's interesting how now in America, we're like, oh, no, if, if that's happening, then you're probably not, you need more, you need more. It's like, well, actually, they're on the front lines. They're getting it, you know, no front line attack from the top down. It's like, well, you need to try harder. It's like, we're, we're doing it. We're in the fight. We need more prayer. We need more faith and support, yes. But here's the perspective. Martin Luther told his friend Philip, you know the reason why you're worried? There's one God, and you're not it. Again, the most important thought that comes in your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That thought, when you, when you think about God, if you're like, yeah, that's cool, you're here to help me, but I'm the one, you're always gonna be anxious and depressed, but when you can surrender and go, you know what, there's only one God, and it's not me, then whatever's coming against me, whatever you're allowing, it's for your glory, and I can't wait to see how it's gonna be for my good. Romans 8, I can't wait, I'm gonna keep having faith, I'm gonna keep trusting, and I'm gonna look for this, because whether it's a healing now, or you're gonna be perfectly healed in the presence of God then, it's gonna be victory, we're guaranteed. And so there's always this perspective where you say, look, there's a holy father whose wisdom is a transcendent wisdom, it's holy wisdom, and it's, it's infinitely above you. You can't understand why this has come against you, you can't understand why this challenge is here, but we can understand that God loves you and God's in control. So when Jesus approaches the father, when he, we overhear him talk, talking in this intimate way, and he approaches him and says, Holy Father, which means to be separate for a purpose. We see there's three things that keep us from receiving the five themes. We see the three things that keep us from receiving the unity, the truth, the mission. Number one, we see 
Children of a holy father are not critical. Having a critical spirit keeps us distracted. It keeps us distracted off the mission, keeps us looking off of the truth and and always kind of unsure. And and we see that in this post-truth society, this post-modernism that's really taken our culture by storm, modern people think that we can create our own truth. In in the olden days, uh, we believe that truth is out there, is to be discovered, and then align your life with it. You, you discover it, and then you come under truth. But now we create our own truth, and there's this post-truth view. And in the Wall Street Journal, of all places, a year ago, uh, a guy wrote an article explaining, okay, great, let's talk about this. You guys want to live in a postmodern society. Let's think about how truth is, is viewed in a post-truth society. So metaphysically, let's talk about this post-truth era. So there's coherence theory. If your beliefs just hang out there and they don't self-implode or, or eat themselves, if truths can hang out there together and they're kind of consistent, then that can be your truth. So the coherence theory. There's semantic theory, he said, where there's a community of truths that your community would hold. And if your community, your, your, your work community or your friend community our family community, if they have truths, then that can be true for you. And then there's the pragmatic, where if, if the truth, what you believe works for you, then go for it. If you think you can go kill people, do it. Like, if it works for you, just be pragmatic about it. You have truth. But truth is something we create. Any one of those thought processes is truth is something we create. Here's the problem. If we really did believe this, then why are we so angry? If we really believe that you could create your own truth and you could create your own truth, then why are both sides always angry at each other and fighting? If, if my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth, then we're going to be happy, right? No, because my truth says that's a lie and I'm going to tell you about it. And then they're going to say, no, you can't have a truth that t- says mine's a lie. And then there's attacking constantly. So the truth is we are angry and we do believe in an absolute truth. And the reality is that the author would contend that your truth can't just be your truth and my truth be mine because we're always mad. We can't agree what truth is because we can't agree that Jesus says I'm the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. He simplifies it. He says I am truth. I'm here. This is absolute truth. But the world, as he says, I came and gave them your word but they rejected it. Anytime Jesus comes and says I'm the light of the world, they run into darkness. They run from the light. That's to be expected. We still, as he says, are to go and proclaim the gospel that they might know and be saved. Verse six, they obey your word. You know you've heard me say this over and over when we look at every Sunday, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane in the cup. Interestingly, when Jesus is in the garden, he comes back to his disciples before as he's praying and having this conversation, he comes back to his disciples and they'd fallen asleep. And he asked them not to. He said, you guys, I'm like, my heart is wrenched. I'm so torn up. I'm getting this cup from my father, but it's not a cup like a Dr. Pepper on a hot day or a hot coffee in the morning. It's a, it's a challenging cup and I need you guys with me right now. And they're like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like we were up with you those four days, Lord of the Rings series. Like we watched them all. We watched all the Harry Potters, read all the books. We're totally we're totally awake with you, Lord. We got you, man. Whew, those Netflix series we did, those eight seasons straight. That was crazy. Peter's still recovering, and they fell asleep. It's like, what? 
We could do everything in the world, no problem. And the moment we read the Bible, we're like, snooze. The moment we sit down, the moment Jesus is like, just an hour, come on, you got this. We're like, yeah, we got this. We're going to be awake praying. No, they're out. And Jesus gets his whip, or he goes and tells them, hey, go get that switch. I'm going to, no, he doesn't. But so many of us, we grew up with that view of God, that he would just lay into you because you didn't obey what he said. In our form, we have 10 commandments. That's what we grew up, right? Obey God or he's going to be mad at you. He's going to come against you. Or maybe they thought, as you talk to your friends or people at work, yeah, I believed in there as a wrath-filled, vengeful God. But then I thought, well, there's a God who loves everybody and allows everybody into heaven. And then they move to the final destination where Satan loves them to be is just confused. I don't know what I believe. Probably not God. Maybe you believe whatever you want to believe. Well, that can't, that's not, that doesn't work. So we have this problem. Who is a holy God? How does he respond to us? We see perfectly. Jesus lovingly explains the situation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know you meant well. You see, we have to see Jesus' model of not having an overly critical spirit, but a caring spirit that identifies the battle is, is not physical, it's a spiritual battle. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, those of us who are critical, irritable spirits, it's better for us to get down in the dust like Jesus did, to understand for their perspective what's going on, the holy love of the Father. It's always easy to give ourselves a ton of grace. I'm like the least anxious kind of controlling person and I give myself so much grace and then someone does something and I'm like, man, they're lazy. Why don't they care as much? Yeah, work hard. And it's like, okay, there I am. And then I realize, wow, people that are super controlling and type A, I'm like, I have so much empathy for you dealing with people like me that are like free spirits. Like, dude, I'm waiting for the set wave of my life. Like, I'll be five hours in the water until that wave comes. It's no big deal. But people, they're like, you said you'd be out there for an hour and a half. It's been three hours. I'm like, well, the wave never, I don't know. It just never came. I was waiting for this wave. It was good set. And then all of a sudden, it died down. And now I'm just out here praying. I'm not shark chum waiting for a little bite on my toe or something. It's like, what's happening? And that's where my mind goes and realizing, oh, I said I'd be home. I need to be home. I need to, and and then to go, okay, let's not have an overly critical spirit. Because we take that into the work. We take that into our relationship with God. And, and here we see a great example. Psalm 130 says, if you were to mark iniquities, who should stand, O Lord? They couldn't even stay up with Jesus. Guilty. I've been there, right? We can't even keep a week, you know, my little Bible apps, like, keep reading me. I'm like, hey, I'm not in my app only. I read my Bible too, okay? App, check it out. I'm reading. But there is that. Like, I can't even keep a Bible street going. Some of you feel like, man, I don't know if I want to show up to Bible study or church because I didn't read ahead. I'm not ready for this. It's okay. Because we know if someone's going to mark your iniquities, all the things you've said, thought, and done against God, there's no one that can stand, oh Lord. But there's forgiveness of sins with you. Therefore, you are feared. We're feared because he loves us so great. We know he's not going to kick us out of the house, but we know he put a roof over our head, clothes in the drawers, a car in the driveway to take us on trips, and food on the table. We don't want to disappoint our loving, holy, heavenly Father, but we do. We can't stay critical. We have to receive the grace he's given to us and give grace to others. Giving what we don't receiving what we don't deserve, and we're giving what they don't deserve. 
not being irritable, grouchy, grumpy, or unhappy. But instead of looking for faults in them, looking for opportunities to forgive and represent the love that God's given us to them. Second, that keeps us from understanding what Jesus is praying for and receiving that truth, joy, holiness, unity, and mission. You see, as you respond defensively. But a child of the Holy Father are not defensive. Imagine if someone came up to you from a couple years back and says, hey, you owe me $500. What? Now, certain people, I'd be like, oh, let's talk about it. Probably I do. I don't know. I'm not type A thinking about that. Other people are like, are you kidding me? I don't owe you 500 For what? When did I ever borrow money? What's going on? Now, think about this detail I left out. Someone comes up to you from a couple years ago and says, hey, you owe me $500, but you just won the million-dollar lottery yesterday. You're like, oh, really? 500 bucks? Okay, here, make it six. Here you go. To those who've been forgiven much, we can and should forgive much. Instead of being defensive, when people come and say, hey, you said this or did this, instead of, well, why would I never, you're an idiot, why'd you take it that way? You'd be like, oh, well, maybe you're right. I probably did do that because I'm a jerk and selfish and I probably said or did something that hurt you, offended you, and I've received grace and mercy. So I'm not gonna be critical, nor am I gonna be defensive. Here, freely here's grace. Here, freely here's mercy. Please forgive me. I'm a horrible, wretched sinner and I'm selfish, and everything I do, even if it's outwardly looking good, if I'm honest, my heart wants a little recognition. Oh, wow, look at that pastor, he served them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, no, God served me so I can serve you. Like, there's that reality, if we're honest. We need a holy father, and he demands perfection, and the only hope we have is by looking at Jesus and seeing that he wants us to be one with the Father as he is one, meaning we need the Holy Spirit. We need salvation. We need to be his son and daughter. We need the Spirit revealing in our hearts where there's a critical spirit, where there's a defensive spirit. And then the Holy Spirit also will remove that and replace it with a defenseless spirit, one of forgiving, one of receiving forgiveness and giving forgiveness. And the beautiful thing is that whole process is what we talk about growing in Christ. And that whole big word in here, sanctification. That's all it is, simplifying sanctification because it's positional and it's progressive. And I know some of you are like, I don't get that, Pastor. That's why you got a fancy degree in study. No, no, it's for all of us, but it takes time. And that's the beautiful thing about growth. You guys weren't born yesterday. Maybe there was a little baby I heard a couple days ago. But most of us, it's been a few years. And a lot of us, we're not as far along. Maybe there's a, there's a, a critical spirit, defensive spirit, or maybe there's just an unwilling. It's like, I don't know about this thing. I don't know how to, maybe after today, you'll be a little bit less attached to it. Maybe you won't cling as much and you'll start to hand it over to Jesus. But it's a process. And lastly, this third mark of a child of God who can receive what Jesus is praying for is that we don't get stuck in self-pity. See, Lord, the reason I'm critical, the reason I'm defensive, the reason I'm worried, the reason I'm disobedient, the reason I don't have self-control, the reason I'm afraid of what's happening in this life, and the reason I'm full of self-pity is because I've been looking to other people and likening other people to you. I've been comparing you to others. I've, 
I've not seen you as the holy father. I've not seen you as the perfect, holy, loving father. There may be some people here who say this is interesting, but I don't think of God that way. I don't think he, you know, I see all these things as interesting, you're saying, but I don't really see God that way. In verse 20, Jesus says he's praying for all these wonderful things for his own. He's praying all these things for his own. He prays for the disciples, truth, holiness, beauty, and all this great stuff I'm talking about, we're gonna keep talking about the next couple weeks. And he also for those who believe through their word. He's not saying, Father, give all these great things we're talking about to anybody who believes in me any old way, but to those who believe in me through the teaching. Isn't that interesting? So often I think about today and I'm like, this is the weirdest thing. Because we learn in rows, but we grow in circles. Like I've had the most transformational growth one-on-one over coffee. I've had the most powerful healing in a small group. We were in a massive group of thousands of people down at this church at Mariners in Irvine. And, and they said, hey, go into the small chapel. We're going to talk about how you've been hurt in ministry. And so from like... 10,000 to 200, still a big group, right? So, but it's all there because we've been hurt. And in that smaller group, and every time you get into a small group, especially like a life group, that's when you start to go, hey, there's this thing happening. I don't know that, we can't do that right now. But that's why we do life groups, and that's why Jesus is saying, hey, there's this 12, I've been doing life with them, and they're gonna go share one-on-one with their neighbor, with their boss, with their coworker, and over coffee, and then in their homes, they're gonna do ministry, and that's where the gospel's gonna take root. And many of you have come out of that, you came over coffee, you came over a meeting at a family, and you're here. And that's where our hope is that you'd go back and do life together in a life group and grow. And the most interesting thing is, How are we viewing God? That's the most important thing about you. That thought, when you think about God, are you looking to him as holy father, as a son and daughter, or are you looking to him as an enemy who is just full of rules and regulations that so quickly moves into, well, God loves everybody. Well, I'm not even sure if I want to believe in a God at all. Imagine, Jesus invites us with a mission, of all missions, to take on the whole world. We need a purpose. We need a mission. Growing up, they went from cowboys and Indians and then realizing, hey, all Indians aren't bad. They created the bow and arrow and shot buffalo. That's pretty cool. And, and then you look at, like, oh, I want to kill a dragon because dragons are mean. And then you realize, well, we're just trying to steal their gold. Maybe they're not all that mean. They're just defensive. But then you, that's the ultimate as a boy. You're like, I want to slay the dragon. Even greater than that, Jesus is like, that's no big deal. Just take me to the whole world and you'll probably die trying. Like, okay, we need a mission. Interestingly, they've done studies in elderly homes where people are living out their last days. If they're given a mission just to feed a little parakeet, they will live longer than other people who don't have a parakeet to feed. It's just a parakeet, but it's not. It's just a mission. We are created to be on mission. That's why Jesus prays for that. He prays that we'd have the joy, the unity, the truth. What's your purpose? What's your mission? It's so interesting, this, this lady ended up living to be 95. Her mission was not parakeets, it was poems and hymns. Her name was Fanny Crosby. She wrote over 8,000 hymns. Safely in the Arms of Jesus is one of her famous ones. She wrote this poem when she was eight. She's an eight-year-old, okay? The poem's not all that great, but it's a good poem, especially for eight-year-old. 
She writes this, Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot, nor I won't. At the age of eight, Fanny Crosby wrote this first poem, and she describes her condition of being blind. She later stated, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind in all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. Her heart was so committed to glorifying God and enjoying him because she knew him as Holy Father. And she wanted to say everything she could and use every intellectual teaching, schooling to bring glory to him and enjoy him even if she couldn't see his creation. And interestingly, she said, you know, the most amazing thing that he's allowed me to do is the only and first time I'll ever see with my eyes will be my Savior's face. She's so committed to seeing her heavenly Father as her holy Father and not saying, being a critical spirit, and oh, whoa, whoa, is me, I don't have, or, or, or she's not having a quick spirit of defensiveness, and she's not stuck and self-pity, and oh, I would be a follower of God, but I can't see his creation. I know some of you are, are literalists, that so you're like, well, I don't see God, so how can I believe in him? She can't see at all, and yet she believes, and yet she not only believes, she's excited and, and delighted that God would limit her senses so that it would heighten other senses, so that she could sing for his glory and enjoy the goodness of what God did give her. Instead of focusing on what she doesn't have, she was content with all that she did have. And again, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. She saw herself as a daughter of the Holy Father who gave her what she needed to bring him glory and to enjoy him forever, which is our purpose as humans. So as we think about this, and some of you are like, oh, that's great, but... Some churches do communion every once in a while. I like to read the Bible, and what the Bible says, I like to do it through the Holy Spirit's power. And Jesus says, often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Take communion. And he's talking to his disciples, to those who believe. And so we do it every week because we forget about the gospel. We forget about Jesus this afternoon or tomorrow. Once we're in the ocean hanging out, hopefully you'll join us. Or tomorrow things get heavy and crazy at work, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to... no. Jesus said, look, the Holy Father, look at what he gave to us. In verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world that they would also believe. That night, as we think about verse 11, when he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, is explained a little bit further in John 18, 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Every week we have a cup up here to remind us that Jesus had one more cup to drink. And every Passover there was a cup they'd fill with wine and they would wait wondering what the cup's about. 
And Jesus is about to have his moment of fame when he finally gets to tell all the Jews of all time what the cup's about. And Peter tried to ruin it like a kid, right? You're setting the table, you get the cup filled, and what do kids do? They knock them over, or they jump in and drink your drink. You're like, that's alcohol, don't drink. No. They just do weird stuff. And Peter gets his sword out, and Jesus is like, dude, this is the cup I've been waiting for. Peter, get your sword away. Don't ruin this for me. This is the cup. And for us Gentiles, we're like, what's the big deal about a cup, dude? Just, I have a bunch of cups. Do you know a cup, Pastor? This is kind of a small one. We get it. Jesus, it's all about the Holy Father. It's all about the holy, perfect demand. And so when God brings him into this garden, when he brings him into this setting, and the disciples, he wanted them to stay awake with them, but they kept falling asleep, and Christ was caused to have this vivid, bright, full, and immediate view of the holy God the Father, where he set the cup down before him, and it was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. He now had a full view of the furnace that he was about to be cast into. He had a view of the raging flames and the glowing of the flame's heat. He now knew he was going to suffer. And where God came to Adam and Eve and said, if you obey me, you'll live. God comes to Jesus and says, if you obey me, I will crush you. And Jonathan Edwards wrote the sermon that I'm I'm paraphrasing for us today. And he wrote this. He said, you know, Isaiah said, you will drink the cup of his fury and you will stagger. Christ was, he was on the edge and he had to smell it. He had to sense it. He had to taste it because it, it wasn't proper for him to jump into this blindfold. God brought him to the edge to see the terror that was before him so that he would voluntarily, willingly take all of the wrath that was intended for you and me. Jesus was getting a taste. He was smelling it. He was seeing the cup of God's wrath. And he was doing it so willingly, understanding the great terror that lay before him. And when he took the cup, knowing what he did, it was showing that this infinitely holy God was infinitely more loving and wonderful as he willingly laid down his life and died. So often, as I referred to earlier, we grew up kind of hearing, and maybe your, your peers or friends think of God as a demanding or cranky God. And all the religions portray him to a degree that way. So it is confusing. But here we see a very different God that doesn't say, you try hard enough and maybe you'll get in. He doesn't say, do all these things, and then I'll add more when there's more revelation. He says, this is it. It's all about me, and I'm holy, and I demand perfection. And there is God of wrath, because when when you look at the injustices, and you look at the crimes and the horrible things that have happened, deep down inside, even though people might say they want a loving God that just allows everyone in, The thought of God just getting all the evil together and say, hey, group hug, it's all fine and good. Just come on in. Like that just wrenches our soul. Like you can't kill millions of people and be like, hey, let's have a group hug. Everything is good. We're all good. I love you. No, there has to be justice. The true God is infinitely more holy and altogether separate, but he's he's infinitely more loving. Jesus knew what he was doing and willingly did it. Jesus obeyed, and God said, I'm going to crush you for it. When all along, God said, obey and you'll live. Obey and you'll live. But they couldn't obey. So sin is the punishment that equals death. No one has ever perfectly obeyed. 
Jesus perfectly obeyed and he got our punishment. So when people say, I believe in a loving God, not a God of wrath, the correct answer to that is what does it cost your God to love you? When people say, no, everyone gets in. I don't need truth. Well, what did it cost God to love you? And most of the time they'll walk away, change the subject, because the answer is almost, it's too difficult to say. Because the real answer they'd have to say is, I guess, nothing. It cost my God that I invented nothing to love me. But because God is infinitely more holy, it costs an infinite cost in order for him to love you. Romans 5, 8, Paul is saying, while you were against God, while you were sinning against him, he showed his love for you. And Christ died for you. And that's why when we take communion in a minute, it's only for those who believe that Christ died for them and receive that payment for their sins. God is infinitely more holy and infinitely more loving. And that's why in the garden, God said, okay, do you love them that much to give your life, willingly laying down your life? Because you're gonna model for them not to have a critical spirit, not to have a defensive spirit. Jesus wasn't like, are you kidding me? This cup for these losers, they came to stay awake with me in the garden. He didn't go, I'm the perfect, holy, just, I've never sinned and now I'm gonna have to die. In his 100% humanity, 100% God, he embraced and he surrendered. He said, yeah, I'm gonna lay my life down for them because he saw, he tasted, he smelt the wrath and the fury that we were all gonna experience if he didn't. And he loved us while we were sinning, Christ died for us. That's the gospel, so clear, so simple. And then the Holy Spirit comes in and helps transform you to look, think, and act like Jesus. The reality was either Jesus perishes or we perish. Either Jesus dies or we die. So as he sees the horrible heat, the pain and anguish that we were all were facing, he says, yeah, I love them enough. I'm gonna go die for them. And rises from the grave three days later and says, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering. I'm the savior, the sanctifier, healer, and coming king. And as we hold on to that hope, waiting for him to come back for us, the invitation now is for those who have not yet believed, not yet become a son and daughter of the king, the holy father, who's infinitely more holy and infinitely more loving. Believe now and be saved. And for those of us who have believed, the elements are passed. I'm gonna close in prayer and I'll give you a minute to sit with the Holy Spirit that might reveal in your heart where there's a critical spirit or a defensive spirit. Maybe you're stuck in self-pity and, and wanting more or wishing things were smoother or trying to figure out what tomorrow holds. He's your Holy Father. He's got it. We can rest in that and have the peace that Jesus brings, that we would love those the way he's loved us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. Opportunity to dive into the depths of your prayer for us, that you pray that we would be kept safely in your hands from the evil one, that we would be kept in the unity that your spirit brings as we understand the truth that, Lord, knowing you, God, is eternal life, growing in that relationship, being sanctified with that truth with you and others, and then ultimately going out and bringing the hope of the world, bringing Jesus to the entire world, 
knowing that the world's going to be against us, Lord, we thank you for saving us and setting us on the mission that you have called us to. We pray for those who have yet to believe that they'd believe now. Receive you. Trust in you as our Lord and Savior and be saved. And they let us know so we can encourage them, pray for them, and walk with them as they follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.